850 in your pew Bible. Page 850 in your pew Bible. And this morning, as we turn to Mark, we have been focusing on the teachings of Jesus and all of the things that were leading up to uh, ultimately his death, burial, and resurrection. And today we're turning the corner. And the way that I have mapped out our plan for the book of Mark is we're going to finish at the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus on Easter. Right? So I'm working really hard to keep us on track. And um, we're going to get there because we want to, uh, this has been a several year process getting through the book of Mark and we're going to finish right on time. As we think about this passage this morning, we see the turning to the cross and Jesus and Mark describing to us the events that are leading up to this. And what we're going to see in our passage this morning is how three different individuals and groups of individuals value Jesus, their, their response to him. And I want to introduce that this morning by thinking about how we value things differently. Oftentimes we think about garage sales, and we often hear about going to a garage sale. One man's junk is another man's treasure, right? We value things differently. I have an aunt, and she would tell the story of, of her dad, who I think we would describe it today as, as a hoarder. I mean, he had a garage packed with stuff. He had a, a barn packed with stuff, and he would go to auctions, and he would go to estate sales and find treasures. And he would find lots of treasures and bring them home and tuck them away. And he had done this for years. Uh, but one day their church was going to have a rummage sale. And so her mom went out to find some stuff that she, to take to the rummage sale. And she digs around and she finds like buried under a bunch of stuff deep in the back this box of pan lids, right, from like a kitchen. And just the lids, not the pans. Finds them she thought, he'll never miss these. These will be great and I'll take these. So she takes them to the rummage sale, and um, a few days, you know, the time gets up to it. And then he comes home one afternoon, and he says to her, says, look what I have found. And he found a treasure of box lids that he had bought before, and he bought them a second time. So <laughs> he was committed to those lids, but he was valuing those lids much differently than she did. Right? He was willing to pay for them twice, and she was ready just to get rid of them. And that illustration helps us to understand how we can look at the very same thing, have the same evidence. She's looking at pan lids that we're not going to use, so why have them? He's looking at pan lids that well, I'm not sure how we're going to use them, but he's got them now and is going to put them back in the barn and we recognize that this valuing things differently, one man's treasure is, or junk is another man's treasure, we see that in our passage this morning in people's response to Jesus. In Mark chapter 14, let's read this passage together. In Mark chapter 14, we'll begin in verse 1, and it says this, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of anointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like this? 
For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always will have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. As we look at this passage, it begins by talking, giving us a time frame. It tells us when this is happening. It says in verse 1, it's two days before the Passover. That it is two days before the Passover. And the Passover, if we remember, the Passover is a celebration of what God did for the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. They had been enslaved by Pharaoh. They had been given hard work to do that Pharaoh, they, would, they, they ordered that the baby boys be killed when they're born. That wasn't working, so they threw the baby boys into the river. I mean, it was harsh, and they made their work miserable. But during that time, the Israelites expanded, and they were growing into a great nation, and they began to groan, and they began to cry out to God to be delivered. And after 400 years being enslaved in the, in the nation of Egypt, God acted. God raised up Moses and sent Moses to bring them out. And by sending a bunch of plagues upon the Egyptians, God finally came to the last plague, the plague called the Passover. And the Passover was a promise to the Israelites and to the Egyptians that coming at a night would be the death, the the angel of death would come upon Egypt. And every firstborn in the nation would be killed. Except for those who sacrificed a lamb and put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of their homes. And whoever would do that would be spared that the angel of death would pass over their house. So the faithful, those who are faithful, they did that. They put, they slaughtered the lamb and they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And they, as they went to bed that night and they woke up the next morning and all of those homes, the firstborn were spared that the death of the lamb had taken the place of the death of the firstborn. But throughout Egypt, those who didn't believe that they rejected this promise, there was a great cry, and they cried out because the firstborn were dead, that God had kept their promise. And as we see this, this is, this is a, over a thousand years later, and the Israelites are still celebrating this Passover. And that's the season. And so during this time that people, from, the Jewish people from all over the, the, that part of the world would gather in Jerusalem. And they would gather in Jerusalem for the Passover and the feast that followed. And it tells us in verse 1 that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to arrest him. They wanted to arrest him by stealth. They wanted to do it in a real sneaky way and kill him. And they wanted to sneak and they wanted to kill Jesus. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And as we look at this, we see these religious leaders planning the murder of Jesus. And what we recognize is that this murder of Jesus is planned by these people because they love their agenda more than they love God. 
their agenda is to be in people of power, to be in authority, and to be the primary leaders in Israel. And yet, in chap- all the way back in chapter 3, we're in chapter 14 here. We rewind all the way back in chapter 3. We read this, that the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So throughout the whole book of Mark, we have seen they've been trying to get Jesus. They've been trying to capture him. They've been trying to silence him, and they're seeking to destroy him. And now they're finally recognizing, they're combining all their forces, all these different religious leadership groups are combining forces and saying, we're going after him, and we're going to kill him. And Jesus knew this was coming. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus, we read of this, and Jesus says that, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. You see, Jesus and these people wanted to threaten Jesus. They wanted to kill him because Jesus was a threat to their power and position. Their agenda was to be people of power, to be people of authority, to be people who are in charge, and yet they're threatened by Jesus. The threat, and because Jesus had become so popular that people were turning from them. They were afraid that the Romans were going to come and, 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 and take them out of a leadership position. And it says that in the book of John, that the religious leaders came together and said this, What will we do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so Jesus is a threat to the way they want to live their lives. Jesus is a threat to their agenda. And so they plan to kill him. And verse 2 says they want to kill him after the Passover, after the feast. And they want to do what it says to us, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. That during this season, that the population of Israel would grow like five or six times from 50,000 people to 250,000 people. I mean, the population really expanded during this time of the festival. It would be like, a, a, like during a Super Bowl, you know, something like that. The population of the city grows because of a big event. Everyone comes to it. And so they're thinking, listen, if we're going to kill Jesus, he's really popular. And if we're going to take him out, let's wait until all these people go back home. Wait till they go back home, and once they go back home, it'll just be the citizens here, and we'll do it then. So that's their plan. They can't plan to kill Jesus. And yet, as we consider this, that their desire to kill Jesus, what are they worried about? They're worried about how the people will respond to them. They're worried about creating a riot. Here's the question. What aren't they thinking about? They're not thinking about... I wonder what God would think of this. I mean, these are the religious leaders, and they give no thought to what God would do. And so we see that the fear of man, the fear of man and the concern for what the, what the people would think is influencing them far more than a fear of God. And as we look at them, we're thinking, man, how could they be so blind? They are planning 
the religious leaders planning to kill someone, not even thinking about, oh yeah, God probably doesn't want us to do this. They're so blinded by their desire for power and position, for influence, that they're more concerned about the people and losing their good favor than sinning against God. And I consider how that, I wonder oftentimes how this is often even true of us. That as we think about the things going on in our lives and what other people think, how we get all tied up in knots over what our spouse is going to think, what our kids will think, what our neighbors will think. We get caught up and tied up in knots about what will people think of me. And we're focusing on all of these things and what's going on inside of us and tied up in knots and not really giving much thought to what God thinks. Think about in a marriage relationship, there are often times when one spouse needs to confront the other spouse in love to speak truth. But oftentimes we're unwilling to do that. We know God says, speak the truth in love, that we know that we need to solve problems and we need to not let the sun go down on our anger. We know those truths, but I'm not sure I want to talk to my honey about that. If I talk to my honey about that, what might happen? She's going to get mad. Because she doesn't want to hear it. Or it goes the other way. Guess what? If she wants to say it to me, guess what I? Guess what's true of me? I don't want to hear it either. And so what do we do? We allow the fear of man, the concerns about what the other people think, lead us to be more concerned about what they think than what God thinks. And we can say, well, at least I'm not killing anybody. Well, that, that's true. You're not killing anybody. But here's the question. Are you obeying God? Are you, are you following what God wants in your life or because you're concerned about what others are going to think, you go silent? You say, I'm just not going to stir things up. I don't want to cause trouble. I don't want to create a ripple. I don't want conflict. I don't want to upset them. And, and listen, I'm, I'm concerned. I think that, that that idea of not wanting to uh, deal with the problems of others, the idea, actually called the fear of man, we so hate conflict that we'll disobey God. And so we look at these people who are willing to kill Jesus because of the fear of man. They're willing to kill Jesus because they want their agenda and not his. That we can look at that and say, that is extreme. And it is, but it's not uncommon. And for us to examine our own lives and to think about how do I allow the fear of man to control me to disobey God rather than to obey him. Well, our passage continues as we see these individuals planning the murder of Jesus. And then we're switch gears in, in verse 3. And what takes place in verses 3 through 9 actually takes place six days earlier. Uh, we're told that in the other Gospels. And so we think Mark is doing something strategic here. Mark is helping us not just walking through the chronology of events, but he's wanting to teach us things about ourselves and about the Gospel. And so we see in these first two verses, we see the religious leaders planning to kill Jesus. And then we have this section about a woman breaking this alabaster jar to honor Jesus. And then in verses 10 and 11, we see Judas scheming with the others to betray Jesus. And so we, in many ways, we have a sandwich here. We have, they're going to kill Jesus, he's going to betray Jesus. And in the middle of it, somebody who loves Jesus. And he gives us this to help us to see the contrast. So what is the contrast? Well, verse 3, it says, While he was at Bethany, 
in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. As we see this woman come to Jesus, uh, we're told in the other Gospels that this was Mary, um, the, the bro- this Mary who is sisters Martha and brothers Lazarus, that she is the one who is doing this. And they're in this house in Bethany, and she comes, and that she takes this jar of costly ointment, like a perfume, it would have been, and, and it tells us that it could have been sold for, a, for 300 denarii. And what does she do with this? She breaks it and pours it on Jesus. And they recognize that the death of Jesus, while earlier they're planning to kill him, she's anticipating this. She's anticipating. She's been listening. And we don't know how much that she knows, but she knows that she loves Jesus and that she loves Jesus in this ointment that was used to anoint dead bodies she was putting on Jesus while he was still alive. And she does this because she loves Jesus more than anything. That this woman honors Jesus with an expression of extravagant love. This, the idea here, it, has, it tells us if this could have been sold for 300 denarii. A denarii is what somebody makes in a day. Okay, so 300 denarii, that that's about a year's wage. It's about how much somebody makes in a year. And so if we would just look at today's kind of dollars, it's easily $40,000. I mean, think about that. You're sitting at a dinner with, with an honored guest and somebody shows up with perfume. Somebody of very meager means, we don't get the idea that, that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were extremely wealthy. But they came in, she comes in, breaks this flask and pours out $40,000 on Jesus. Whoa. And what are the people around thinking? We, we see the people around there saying, why was this ointment wasted like that? I mean, maybe look at that. That's a waste. You just poured out $40,000. You've just dumped it down the drain. What are you thinking? They're saying we could have sold this and given it to the poor. And as they're looking at how these people are valuing Jesus and how Mary values Jesus, we recognize that for her, no expense was too great for Jesus. That this wasn't wasted at all. This was giving to Jesus what he what he is what he what he's owned, what he deserves. And we see, though, yet the disciples that she is criticized by them, that they are short-sighted. They're short-sighted disciples because they think that, well, we could just feed, we could use this money to feed the poor. Which, is feeding the poor a good thing? Well, absolutely. And Jesus talked about the poor and caring for the poor. So it certainly wasn't what they're saying is wrong, but Jesus rebukes them. And Jesus says to them, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. She's done a beautiful thing. You will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. 
that the timing of this was important, that Jesus is going to be heading to the cross, and before he goes to the cross, she does this incredible act of kindness. She does this for him to demonstrate her love. And as we recognize this, Jesus is commending her, is commending her for this beautiful act. And I would ask us the question this morning, how much is too much to give to Jesus? I mean, these disciples concluded, $40,000 a year's worth of this, that was too much to give to Jesus. I would think I'd ask the question, how much is too much of us to give for Jesus? I mean, he has died on the cross, risen from the dead, given us new life, fixed our relationship with him, purchased us in eternity in heaven, promises us brighter days as we walk faithfully with him, and we think, that's too much. How much is too much? I mean, is 11% of your income too much? 10's good, 11's too much. I mean, is it? Is one hour a week, Sunday morning, okay, an hour and a half, pastor gets long sometimes, okay, we'll do that, hour and a half, good, that's how much time, a couple hours, a couple nights a week, read my Bible every day, memorize, that's a little too much, I mean, you're getting a little overboard there, that's too much. I would ask the question, how much is too much to give to Jesus? Maybe ask a question another way, how do you show an extravagant love for Jesus? Does your life demonstrate that you love Jesus in an extravagant way? I would tell you the mark of that would be your faithfulness to him. That if you are faithful to him and faithful to him with your time, your talents, your treasures, that is how we express our love to our Savior. We certainly express it through singing. We express it by gathering. But we express it with our whole lives. And I would ask the question, does your life demonstrate an extravagant love for Jesus? Or are you more likely to say, why was that wasted like that? Because the question we would ask, do we ever waste anything for Jesus? I mean, is anything that we ultimately give to him because we love him, is it ever a waste? Recognize it never is. Well, as we continue in this passage, Jesus, he commends her. In verse 9, he says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And guess who we're talking about today? Her, right? It, I mean, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Jesus said this is going to happen, and we're doing it. We are the fulfillment, the partial fulfillment of this prophecy. And so she is commemorated. She is commemorated even to this day because of her extravagant love for Jesus. And we so, so we see the murder of Jesus has been planned by religious leaders who love their agenda more than they love Jesus. We see this woman, we see her anticipating the death of Jesus and demonstrating that she loves him more than she loves anything else. And we get to verses 10 and 11 and we read of Judas, one of the 12, one of the 12 disciples who's been with Jesus for the last three years that he is with him, and he goes to the chief priests. He seeks them out in order that he may betray him. They make a deal, and they say, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver if you'll let us know where we can find him. And Judas says, all right, it's a deal. They shake on it, and they, for 30 pieces of silver, Judas is going to betray Jesus. 
the 30 pieces of silver, if we would look at that in dollars, is probably about four months' wages. So if we would use the 40000 for a year, that is about, about $10,000, $12,000. Pretty substantial bit of money. And we recognize Judas is eager to take this. Because we read in other New Testament passages that Judas, he's actually the one who said, we could have sold this and given it to the poor, but in John we're told he didn't say this because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And so we see Judas in this, that he is going to be arranging this death of Jesus because he loves money more than the Messiah. He is greedy. He is greedy. He loves money, and so he's willing to sell out Jesus. But it's also likely that he's disillusioned. That Jesus wasn't going to be the political and the economic and the military deliverer of Israel they did hope for. If we would put it in our vernacular, Jesus wasn't going to make Israel great again. And as a result of that, they were disillusioned and said, I'm out. And he's out. And so he agrees to exchange the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. It's interesting, though, because Jesus is going to be betrayed by Judas. Think earlier in our passage. What did the religious leaders, what was their plan for betraying Jesus? When did they want to wait till? Yeah, after the Passover, after the feast. They wanted to wait like a week and a half because wait till everybody goes home. Now what's Judas provided for them? Right now, Jesus on a plate. So what do they do? They're like, we're all in. And this is all taking place on probably the Wednesday, and Jesus is going to be crucified in just a couple of days. So all of these pieces are going to flow into motion. And we recognize that while Judas is doing exactly what he wants, the religious leaders are going to kill Jesus. It's not according to their plan, but they're willing to scrap those plans if they can get Jesus. But what we also recognize is behind all of this is a sovereign God who's working everything according to his plans. Because we've read about Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if Jesus is a Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he is a Lamb who will be slaughtered and whose blood can be applied to the doorposts of our lives, to the lives of those who repent and believe the gospel. And as a result of that, the condemnation of ju- and judgment that we deserve, what happens? It passes over us. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And in eternity past, God has orchestrated all of this to happen exactly according to his plan. And we see a sovereign God working according to the willful choices of the religious leaders and of Judas, and he's going to make it happen exactly as he desires. And we see this plan begins to unfold. And we see Judas, who is greedy. What does he get from this? Just what he wants. He gets money. He's greedy. He is a thief. But what happens? That while Judas gains much, he loses everything. It should remind us of a passage earlier in the book of Mark where it says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and what? Lose his soul. As we recognize this, as we read about Judas, oftentimes we would say, man, I would hate to be in his shoes. And I think we're all right to say, yeah, no kidding. I would not want to be in his shoes. And yet, 
in many senses, we are in his shoes. You see, Judas is not condemned primarily and only for his sin of betraying Jesus. Judas is going to be condemned for all the rest of his sins as well. His sins of lying, of stealing, of sexual, thinking sexual immoral thoughts and participating in wrong activities, all of his sins, that all of his sins are what he is going to be condemned for and betraying Jesus. And as we consider that, we would look at this one act of Judas and he stands out. But apart from that one act, the rest of Judas's life is like ours. That like us, we are guilty. He is guilty of breaking the greatest commandment to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we too are guilty of breaking that law. We love our comfort. We love our pleasure. We love our way. We love our agenda. We love the opinion of others. We love what we love. And because of all that, we choose to live on our terms rather than God's. And as a result of that, we are condemned and we stand in judgment of God. And the result of this is why? Because we love all the wrong things. And yet the whole purpose of Jesus coming was to be able to come and to forgive and to cleanse us and to, to provide us help and hope. And so what do we read in Scripture? As we read through these next few chapters, we realize that this condemnation that we all deserve has been poured out on Jesus, our substitute. And that when we repent and believe the gospel, his perfect righteousness is put on our account and we are made new and acceptable to God. And we're made new and acceptable to him because of what Jesus has done for us. As we see in this picture this morning, we see people valuing Jesus differently. We see the religious leaders valuing their agenda, what they wanted to happen, their power, their position. They love that more than they love Jesus. We see Judas loving money more than he loved Jesus. Maybe the question for us this morning is, what do we love more than we love Jesus? An easy example of that is to just ask yourself, when do I tend to sin? What is it that I try to get so much or I'm not getting that I will sin to get it or sin to avoid it? That's why you love more than Jesus. It's why we sin. And that we would examine our hearts and say, God, help me to know my heart. Help me to see you more clearly. Help me to love you more purposefully. Help me to see the where is that I fall short and how other loves compete with the love for you. And help me to surrender all of my love to you and to love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that we would all confess that. And maybe this morning that this is new and you're just trying to put all this together, we would love to be able to explain this more to, to you so that you would humble yourselves and be made new and your sins washed away. And that can happen as you confess your sins and trust Jesus. And for believers, a challenge for us is to examine ourselves, to examine and think, do I love Jesus? Do I love him with an extravagant love? A love that he deserves. And so this morning, as we see these different people planning this funeral for Jesus, I pray that God would open our eyes and our hearts to our primary loves and that we wouldn't simply lip and say, yep, I love God, but that our lives would demonstrate that we truly love him 
and we truly love him extravagantly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that for us in Christ. Lord, I